I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. Gallipoli was a complete catastrophe, even by the standards of the First World War. Nothing strategically useful was achieved. Tens of thousands of people, soldiers, British, Commonwealth, Imperial, French soldiers, and Turkish, of course, killed, maimed, wounded, all as part of the fruitless attempt to force the Narrows, force the ships through the Bosphorus, Allied forces through the Bosphorus, and attack Istanbul, knocking the Turkish enemy out of the war like a hydra, by striking at its very head. The fighting at Gallipoli was terrible, as you'll hear in this podcast, but there was one element of the Gallipoli campaign which went very smoothly and showed British and Allied ingenuity in its best possible light, and that was the evacuation. The evacuation took place in the depths of winter, 1915 to 1916, um, and it went off largely without a hitch, as you will hear from the fantastic historian Peter Hart. It's, it's such an honour to have him on the podcast because I've been a huge fan of his for years. I've worked with him on a couple of projects. This is his first time on the podcast. We're very lucky to have him. He has written a wonderful new book on the evacuation of Gallipoli, and he joined me to talk about the campaign and particularly how the British, the French, and their allies were able to get away from the peninsula which had actually become something of a prison for them. Peter Hart worked for years at the Imperial War Museum as an oral historian. He interviewed hundreds of First World War veterans decades ago. He's got an almost unparalleled knowledge of the wartime experiences of that now lost generation. Uh, if you want to watch uh, First World War documentaries, we've got plenty on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix, but it's for history. You enter the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free, and you get your second month for just one pound, a euro or dollar. You should go and check it out. You're going to love it. Um, and in the meantime, though, here's Peter Hart with Gallipoli, the end game. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Been looking forward to it. Well, no, I've been. It's You're one of the giants of the British historical ah. scene. So it's a great <laughs> honour to have you on. And uh, I'm very, very excited. Just before we talk about the Gallipoli evacuation and the subject of your new study... Um, you're, I mean, you and sort of Richard Van Emden are the two who's been on the podcast once or twice. Uh, you've talked to probably more First World War veterans, uh, interviewed them than than anybody, you know, anyone in the world. It, it's an absolute privilege. And I was allowed to do that by my job, of course, because I worked for uh, the Imperial War Museum and I was their oral historian. But it, it was so great. You just didn't realise what you were doing almost. I was quite youngish in my you know, early 30s and I didn't realise probably what a great opportunity it was. I'd give anything to speak to them now because I, I know a lot more about it than I did then, I can assure you. 
Well, and, I, uh, I've, I've heard many of the transcripts that you've you recorded because we had a BBC project we worked on together that went out on Radio 4 during the centenary. I remember. And yeah. I think you asked amazing questions, so I don't, I don't think you should be too harsh on yourself. But what's fascinating is the longer we, the longer we travel from the war almost the more remarkable they become. That's what's so extraordinary. So when my kids listen to them in 50 years' time, they're going to be listening to about events that took place eons ago. It's going to be... A, you know, what an amazing thing to have created that you've, you've done. I'm so proud to do it, but grateful for the... As I say, for the opportunity from my employers. It, it is like a dream to meet Joe Murray, who I'd read his book, Gallipoli, as I saw it when I was a young geek of about 15 or 16, and then to actually sit opposite him and listen to him tell his stories. And he had the weirdest memory. I mean, I don't know what your memory's like. I'm dreadful. And uh, <laughs> he could tell, he said, uh, do you know what you've got in your pockets, Peter? And I said, this is off tape. I said, not really, no. And he said, well, I know what I had in my pockets in 1915. <laughs> and it, it was that sort of, that's an exaggeration. He was, but he did, and it was interactive. So it wasn't just him telling a story. But he, you could say, ah, but why did you do that? And he'd give you a reasoned explanation. What a treat it was to interview. And there were so many great veterans that I had the pleasure of interviewing. And, and then, of course, the Second World War ones, who are now coming to an end of their time. You know, it's, we have this... I certainly was brought up with this impression of the First World War, that it was almost uniquely horrifying in every way imaginable. The mud and the blood and the Passchendaele, the, you know, the, the, the meat grinder that was the, the Battle of 30 April, so, so many battles. Uh, when you were talking to them, and now that you've talked, obviously you've talked to Second World veterans, you've talked to Hellmanned veterans, and did, did it, does, it, does it feel that they had an experience that was somehow unique within the history of war? Or, or does it, is it just, an, you know, would, if you'd met veterans of Roberts's army in, in in the Boer War in, in in South Africa, or the or Napoleon's troops as they retreated from Moscow in the freezing cold. Is it just that war is is often that extreme and a, a, appalling? It, to me, the veterans had more in common than separating them. The 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 experience of conflict, the fears, the terrors. What what changes is the surrounds and and what's happening. But going over the top in the First World War is not a unique uh, uh, experience. You ask people who fought in the Normandy fighting. I know you've done a lot of work on Normandy, and it's just as terrible. The casualty rates in Normandy in 1944 are very comparable with the casualty rates on the Western Front in some of the great battles. I, I genuinely feel that... And, and if you talk to an Afghanistan veteran or, or an Iraq veteran, it, the, the same emotions, it's, it's the same feelings... Often the same privations, the same problems they're facing. The, the food is generally awful. They're, they're, it's got a bit better now, but it's still sometimes bad. This kind of thing, it never changes. Uh, so for me, there's more in common. Uh, the veterans have more in common than you'd think. Yeah, and I, because obviously I, I love the 18th century as well. I think if you look at the, you know, Cartagena or, or you know, in, in uh, the war of Jenkins' ear with the with the disease and the, the bodies floating in the harbour. I think I think we'd have found similarly appalling stories from 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 generations before as well of those veterans of the First World War. Well, dysentery at Gallipoli, which is a particularly horrible feature of that and the Mesopotamia campaigns, and dysentery in the Indian campaigns of say Wellington fought, would be the same. It's the same awful feeling. The same. Oh, I don't know. It's just too terrible to imagine sometimes for a soft, lily-livered person like myself. 
<laughs> no, we don't know. We've been very lucky. So oh. my 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 great grandfather was was at Gallipoli as as a medic, and that apparently my mother grandmother my nine says that he was a changed man after that. Well, just briefly, because we're going to talk about the evacuation, which was the most successful part of the Gallipoli campaign. Yes, <laughs> the only. Yeah, the <laughs> the only one. success, the only beacon of success. Uh, just br- briefly, let's talk Gallipoli. The the idea itself. Why why did these why did the British and French armies find themselves fighting on this sort of strange promontory in in the eastern Mediterranean? That the, they had a variety of reasons, which on paper looked good. You know, to uh, to knock Turkey out of the war, to help Russia, to uh, to send munitions to Russia, to encourage the Balkans to join us, to encourage Italy to join us. All these things. But the reality is very different. Uh, the, the Russians had already sorted out their imminent problems, their immediate problems, sorry, with the Turks. Uh, the, the, there was no munitions to send. Uh, we, it's the year of the shell shortage. Uh, the Russians didn't have food senders because they had difficulties moving it around their country. The railway system was already over overstretched. All these excellent reasons. The Balkans, then as now, would rather fight each other than band together against an outsider. Germany doesn't rely on... Uh, Turkey wasn't propping Germany up. Uh, Turkey was, was, was just an extra. It was a, a... Basically, they were trying to avoid fighting on the Western Front. It's politicians all over the world, always. They look for the easy option, partly because they are dependent on voters, and voters don't want to suffer. Uh, so it, it's, it's a sort of never-ending circle that, that goes on. Politicians do what the, the public wants and the public often then moan about it. Um, so, so that's what it is. It's, uh, it was a, a great concept. Churchill often gets the blame, and I think he is substantially to blame. Uh, he was uh, first sea lord, sorry, first lord of the admiralty. But the reality is, with mature, and historians are allowed to sort of develop their views, I now even more think it's the responsibility of the whole cabinet. Churchill was not that senior in the cabinet. He could have been stamped on. Kitchener and, uh, and, and other senior figures could have stopped it, but they didn't. So therefore, as they let it carry on, they are jointly responsible. It's not just Churchill. And, uh, and, and so, it was a stupid idea. And so the Royal Navy tries to force its way up to... Um up to Istanbul uh, through the through the Dardanelles doesn't work. They decide because it's blocked. So you've got to land on this Gallipoli Peninsula. <laughs> Shouldn't be too hard. I mean, you know, Gallipoli it's just a it's just a you know otherwise unremarkable bit of land. Why did it turn into this sort of byword for futility and slaughter? Well, mainly two things. One, although it's not particularly unusual piece of land anywhere in there's lots of places in Scotland that are, that are like the, the terrain. The terrain is not helpful. But most of all, most of all, the thing that we, they forgot then and we often forget now, the Turks. The Turks were tough soldiers. They'd had recent experience of combat in the Balkan Wars, which they done very well on, but not because of individual soldiers. And they were well led. They were led, well led by a, a fairly good combination of some German experts and a, a German leader, Limon von Saunders, and excellent Turkish commanders especially at divisional and uh, regimental level. They, 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 were a, they, were, they were a really tough enemy. And it's the British disease. It's hubris. It's, like, it's why we always think that every time there's a World Cup, our football team's going to win it. Based on what? <laughs> our cricket team's always going to win. Our, you know, we have the best postman in the world, do we? Do we, do we actually know any postman from other places? We have the best <laughs> this, that in the world. And often it's just us thinking things. 
we often give ourselves nicknames that no one else in the world thinks of, like devils in skirts. The Germans don't call the Highlanders that. They call, they call them English. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so we just underestimated them terribly. Uh, it's a shame. And the, the fighting on, on that peninsula was so extraordinary for all the reasons that you get on the western front but what is extraordinary about it is there was no safe zone that i'm always struck was there every inch of british french allied lines um positions held territory was under observed fire or certainly indirect fire from turkish positions the only places that were safe was a very good, a couple of very deep gullies. And that's the only, and they weren't safe. A shrapnel could get in there. Uh, but yes, you were under stress. Western Front, as you know, two or three days in the front line, two or three days in support, three days out in reserve, and then often rest periods. You're in the line, the very dangerous parts for three days. Gallipoli, you landed whenever you landed, say the 25th of April in worst case, and you were there until, until what? And that's what the, the story of this, uh, this, this chat is about, till you're evacuated. There's no way out uh, except by death or, um, or, or wounding or very commonly illness. But the rest of them had to just endure it. And, and the stress levels were incredible, incredible. You've talked to so many veterans, it must be impossible to make this judgment but when you compare the Somme to Gallipoli to the fall of Kut Alamara the um the, the shocking third Ypres in 1917 the collapse of uh Goff's army in 1918 is, is there any sense that you can you could was there something that stood out about Gallipoli and the veterans you talked to the trauma they suffered they share it with Mesopotamia. It's, it's dysentery, but it's not just dysentery. It's a cocktail of diseases. They've also got jaundice, which actually they quite liked. Gave them a bit of colour in their faces. Uh, paratyphoid and soldier's heart, which is where your heart, your, soul, your body just starts to give up. You get a disordered action of the heart, which is exactly the same as being 90. You're a soldier, but your body's got a disordered action. You can't act. It's, you're fundamentally, your body's closing down. You do get sent away then. So... This marks it out. The fighting, although serious and dangerous, there's not much shell fire. And all Gallipoli veterans are absolutely appalled when they get to the Western Front with the shell fire. But on the other hand, they're not, they're not going to the loo 15 times a night. So there's a bit of swings and roundabouts. But the artillery fire on the Western Front is... Uh, Without, uh, without any sort of comparison. Uh, you can't compare it to... I mean, at Gallipoli, they, they sometimes only had two or three shells a day, which if they didn't hit you, isn't that uh, bad? Uh, now, uh, the decisions made to um, abandon Gallipoli, when, when is that decision taken? And it's no easy matter, is it? Because you're kind of suddenly you're that you go from being the aggressor to the, to the, the potentially the, the hunted. Well, this happens with the failure of the August offensive from Anzac and the, and the new Suvla landing. So basically, they couldn't get through at Helles, they couldn't get through at Suvla, uh, 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 and they couldn't get through at Anzac. So what were they going to do? And there's a great period of everybody trying to evade evacuation. And, and in, in actual fact, that the key to the evacuation is that Hamilton, Sir, Sir Ian Hamilton, in many ways a, a really likeable figure, uh, he was uh, the commander-in-chief of, of, of the expeditionary force to Gallipoli. He, he is removed because he will not consider seriously evacuation. And he's replaced with a chap called Charles Munro, who's a Western Front general and very practical. And he arrives and he just 
you could he visits all three sites Helles Suvla and uh, Anzac in a single day and as Churchill puts it he came he saw he capitulated which is a typical Churchill Churchill is very clever. It is an amusing sort of epigram, wittish, waspish remark. It's also, like a lot of Churchill stuff, utter bollocks. Um, it, it really is. Uh, he came and it was so flaming obvious that these, these bridgeheads were untenable that he came to an instant decision. And as soon as he gets there, uh, he, he arrives on the 30th of October. On the 31st of October, he recommends evacuation, warning they might lose between 30 and 40% of the men and the material there and that decision so that's taken there on 31st of October sadly that is not the end of it because everybody back in Britain goes what about the empire these Turkish chaps are Muslim <laughs> and the British empire has got an awful lot of Muslims in it India you know Egypt well, what are we going to do about it and they don't they don't want to risk it so it's 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 crazy isn't it uh, Kitchener the Secretary of State for War he goes out and he may be a politician by then, but he's not really, not in his heart of hearts. He gets there, he takes three days to look at the things, and he comes to the same decision. No, 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 you've got to get off. But he was still worrying. Then you've got, they've got this mad period where everybody's doing everything. Should we send the troops to Salonika? Should we send the Salonika troops here? Should we use a naval assault? Should we do this? Should we do that? The British government can't make its mind up. It's flanneling about politicians. Who's going to take the decision? They are. Who's going to get the blame? They are. They don't want to take the decision. They can only see disaster looming. And it takes from when he, when, when Munro recommends evacuation until the 7th of December before the, the politicians finally agreed to evacuation. Just think of what that means. It's gone from being autumn to the depths of winter. What, what problems could that pose? Well, what problems could that pose for an evacuation off a coast with no bloody harbour? I don't know. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Uh, and yet, one thing the British Empire is consistently good at is um, evacu- evacuations. Running away. <laughs> running away. Running away. Uh, and so, a big advantage, of course, is complete control of the seas around, well, not or not on the east side of Bar the peninsula. submarines. Yeah. Bar, bar submarines. Yeah. And that, that helps, does it? Well, it, it's like anything to do with the, the British. Uh, the Royal Navy underpins everything. And the Royal Navy, although they've got this mad scheme to have another go at the Straits, they are actually brilliant and they focus all their energies. And they are practical men. They, they, they make fantastic arrangements to get all the boats, sort everything out. And, and they do wonderfully. What, what would we do without the Royal Navy? Uh, you know the 18th and 19th century. You know, well, certainly the 18th You know exactly what I mean. Without the Navy, we are done for. When the Navy loses control, the army lose. Uh, and so everything, the evacuation depends on the Navy. But the problems, and this is why I wanted to write the book, and, and this is why I'm grateful to Matt McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin as he insists he's called. Silly bugger. Uh, it's clearly spelt McLaughlin. You curse me for that. Uh, but he, him and livinghistory.com uh, are pr- producing the book because it's so exciting. How are they going to get away, Dan? There's no real ports. The winter's coming. The storm's brewing. They've already had what they had one huge storm the back end of November, uh, which t- rainstorm followed by freezing cold. Five thousand evacuated, hundreds dead. How are they going to get off? How are they going to do it? The Turks at Suvla, that they're uh, the Turks are uh, the, the lines are about four miles inland. They're quite distance between them, but they're four lines inland. At, at Anzac, they're matter of hundreds of yards inland, but they're just two or three yards between the trenches in places. How are they going to do it? How are they going to do it? And, and that's, for me, what the book's about. How are they going to do it? Uh, and it's a two-part story because you've got, firstly, Suva and Anzac, and then, of course, you've got Hellas. It's, it's a great story. Um, and when you write a single-volume history, you've got no space for it. You, you know the constraints of writing a book, and you know the constraints publishers put on you. You can't, if it's a single-volume history of a big campaign, there's no room for real detail, real fun, as I call it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm rabbiting on. No, not at I all. get excited. Not at all. And it's good to hear Matt McLaughlin's, um, Matt McLaughlin's uh, <laughs> name being taken in vain there. He's been on the podcast many times. He's a good friend. He so, has. I've listened to them, yeah. So uh, what, just br- briefly, I mean, how do you... Dis- it's, always, it's always said by military armchair military historians, and I'm sitting in an armchair with a bookshelf behind me full of military history books. Uh, it's me. always said that disengaging from the enemy uh, is the hardest bit to do, isn't it? I mean, and how on earth do you do that on the Gallipoli Peninsula, where, as you point out, they're all so... They're overlooking each other in each other's pockets. Well, the thing is, they were brilliant. The, the historically normal thing to do would have been to launch a diversionary attack and uh, and try and distract the enemy's attention. Uh, by this time, in essence, Monroe's still in charge, but uh, 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 Birdwood, William Birdwood, is essentially in command of the final stages with his, uh, the Chief of Staff, Brigadier General Cyril Brudenell White. You might say, why am I mentioning him? Well, he's the Chief of Staff who comes up with a plan. He realises that when it goes quiet, <laughs> the Turks are going to realise that you've gone. What they're going to do is they're going to sneak away, thinning out the lines, thinning out the troops, behind, keeping hold of the front line, but gradually thinning out all the troops behind it. And then in the final stage, they would, uh, they would pull back the front line and just make a basic basically go for, go for the sea. And he realised that the, the key moment was when it goes quiet, when the front lines are empty. And he came up with quiet, quiet periods. And you think, 
what's clever about that? Well, what's clever about it is it, it, it's conditioning. They call, so what you do is you have a quiet period for a couple of days, perhaps three days. And what you do is, first the Turks peer over the top, nothing happens. Then they start creeping about in no matter, nothing happens. They may, if they get too close to your lines, you shoot them. But other than that, you leave them be, you don't fire at all. And then suddenly, up on the fire step, fire, mass fire. And what you've done is said, just because it's quiet doesn't mean we're not there. And it's brilliant. And they keep doing this and it conditions the Turks. Uh, is it part of the British new routine? Must be. Uh, quiet does not mean gone. <laughs> and, and it's great because you could imagine the average soldier in the trench when it comes to the real evacuation, they're, they're not going to be keen to investigate because their mates have investigated and been killed. So it's, it's a great, great plan. Uh, and then you've got the uh, the thing that people always go mad about, and that's the self-firing rifles. And my book is not sniffy about them, but points out that these only really give you 30 minutes. Uh, it's basically water dripping, and then it, something, a, a complicated mechanical thing pulls the trigger. So that after you've gone, there's still an occasional rifle shot. But these are nowhere near as important as the quiet periods. They are, uh, they are, they are good fun, and, and everyone likes a diagram. I'm sure my book will have a diagram. I'm knowing Matt. <laughs> and so the last few troops to leave, uh, is it literally a matter of leave the Browning machine gun and sprint down to the boat waiting on the beach below? Uh, no, they took the machine guns back. Vickers, 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 you're, you flipped to the Second World oh, War. Oh, sorry. Vickers, yeah, Vickers. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I knew what you'd done because I do that kind of thing. I'm just doing a book on Fife and Fourth Fire Yeomanry and they've got Brownings in their tanks, so I recognised it. I've been um, doing do too much battle, too much Spitfire Mark 1s with the Battle of Britain at the moment. That's the problem. Our heads are sometimes just a jumble, aren't they? I, I, yeah, so they basically... At Anzac, it all goes brilliantly. I mean... Uh, Suvla, there's no trouble at all. Anzac, it's so tense, but they creep back to the beach. There's just there's basically sort of 20 or 30 men on a battalion front by the end. And they've it succeeds. All the ruses playing a cricket match the day before they leave. There's a famous photograph of that. It, it's really just a demonstration. They actually had smoking patrols of people wandering around smoking. Uh, they emptied out all the... Uh, the, the supply depots from inside, a million ruses. The engineers had created better roads back to the beach. Everything's marked out, everything's planned, and they do it. And the thing is, and this is the part, and it may disrupt you slightly, because this is only the first part of the story. Because having done that, they haven't evacuated Hellas because the government wouldn't let them, and, and also the Navy couldn't do it. So then they have to do it all over again. But now it's January, and... The final evacuation on, on the, the 8th, 9th of January is even more tense. I don't want to go on and on and on, but can I get, give you the situation? There, not a, it's a combination of Suva and Anza. They are four miles to go back, but at places, the trenches at the front are only two or three yards apart, four or five yards apart, a cricket pitch at most in, in, in certain sectors. So they've got both problems joined together. The Turks know they're going. They've moved up more troops. The heavy guns, which are one of the reasons they had to go. They've got guns coming from Bulgaria, through Bulgaria, heavy howitzers. If they hit, they're dependent on flimsy piers and a floating bridge and things like that to get off. If any of those are hit, it'll delay the evacuation. Thousands of men will be trapped. And it is thousands, 20,000 men 
on the last night at Helles. Would they get away with it? Would the Turks be fooled? They'd had an attack the day before, which had been beaten off thanks to the Royal Navy. It is such, such an exciting story, Dan. And the Helles part is often totally ignored because books tend to do one and then think, oh, well, and then they got off from Helles. But what a story it is. And my favourite thing about the whole thing is, I know you love visiting battlefields, but if you visit W Beach, at the back, there's a, what looks like a, it's just a, a gully thing on the right-hand side. Next time you go, have a look. It's where they put all the explosives that they couldn't get off, and they set a fuse. And there were several of these. One of them had been set off by, a, it was, a, some people say, a careless man with a candle. I think you and I would both know that it's almost certainly somebody smoking a tab, quiet cigarette, in the... <laughs> Set fire, set fire to the explosives and fuel depot. And they've got this going on. They've got the fuses set and they can't find one of the generals. He's, he's got sort of lost behind. And it's, it, it, they actually have this stupid poem. Uh, it's uh, Major General Stanley Maud's been left behind and he's coming over the top with just his key staff. The fuses have been lit. One of them has been set light by a stupid soldier. They, they, it's three or four hours since they left the front lines. The Turks could be arriving in any minute and a major general's missing and the bloke on the beach wrote come into the lighter maud the fuse has long been lit oh come into the lighter maud and never mind your kit and so then it gets a bit more abusive i won't read that <laughs> and then they just get on the last boats and as they're actually pulling out that the the massive uh, explosive dumps blow up uh, like Brock's benefit, and round that, uh, you know, I told you about the, um, the 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 whole. Round that is an explosive debris field, which was spotted by a, 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 an Afghan veteran. I took there, Afghan, you know, recent Afghanistan veteran, and he said, "Pete, what's this explosive field?" Because I and every other historian who'd ever been there had never spotted it, and all these boulders across this field, too big to move, were from inside that that valley. That is history brought to life. That's why I love visiting battlefields. I'm sure that's why you love visiting them, because you can see things that tell a story. And also, uh, we should like the amphibious landings on Gallipoli. Uh, we, they didn't have LCUs, you know, landing craft, these, the, these big things that you, you perhaps become more familiar in the Second World War. I mean, they are, you mentioned lighter. They're kind of getting into rowing boats and stuff, aren't they? They've moved on slightly from that. They've got uh, what they call uh, beetles, uh, which, funnily enough, look a bit like assault craft. So they've got things at the front, uh, like, like antennae, and they drop a ramp. And they have got lighters that take, uh, well, uh, 200, 300, 400 men. And they're helpful. But, but fundamentally, it all depends on this floating bridge at W Beach, for instance, on the 8th, 9th, the last night. Uh, and that floating bridge, the lighters bash into it. The floating bridge leads to the hulks, and there you can get the destroyers too. But if that floating bridge is broken, and it is, then they have to go on the lighters. And the lighters are not very big, and, and there's a storm brewing. <laughs> it, it's all such a, such a story of... I don't know how they did on that. On that last night, they get off another sort of... Uh, the, the, the statistics are really good. Another sort of nearly uh, 17,000 or so men. Um, um, you know me in statistics, I, like yourself. I, I don't think history is statistics. I think history is a story and, 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 and understanding why it happens. It's, it's just amazing. It really is. And how many men do they lose during the evacuation? 
Well, funnily enough, none is the official answer. When you're reading accounts where a couple of people get badly injured, there's one tale of somebody falling between the boats and drowning, but he doesn't appear on the casualty <laughs> record, so I'm going with none. And that is amazing. Uh, for instance, at Helles, which is the, the tightest of them all, since the government in the, what, 28th of December, the government gave final permission to evacuate... Evacuate. They evacuate 35,268 men, 3,689 horses and 20 and mules and 20, 127 guns. Uh, they did destroy 907 horses and mules. And if you go into Gully Ravine, which I'm sure you've been into, if there's been a storm, you still get all the bones, the horse bones turning up from where they shot them all. Uh, and there's great oral history accounts of people. I'm not shooting my mule. They just let them go. But most of them were shot. But that again, those mules' bones still litter the lower regions of uh, Gully Ravine. It is what, what, what a story! Well, it's an amazing story, and it's one of the great battlefields to visit for lots of reasons. Uh, it's just there's something extraordinarily special, as well as the drama of the landscape, the way it's been preserved, the nature of the the nature of the fighting. It's an amazing place, isn't it? It is. It's just I, I think it's awesome. Uh, I urge everybody when 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 they, when they can. Not sure whether COVID will allow it, but to, 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 with all battlefields, but Gallipoli is just so beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, the trenches are still there because it's never been, uh, it's not like the Western Front. Uh, at Helles, most of the trenches have gone, but in the gullies and, and at Anzac, the trenches are all there. Up on Kirich Tepe, where they mounded up uh, uh, Sangas, like, like in India, the Sangas, it's an Indian name, the Sangas are still there. It, it's an amazing, uh, some of the dugouts are still there at, at uh, W Beach. There's one of the winter dugouts to the left on the side of the cliff is still there. You can go in it, 20 or 30, you can go in it. it it's, it's not safe, but <laughs> you can. Oh, what a place to visit. I, I, I just love it. Um, I, I, and, and, and this story, I was so pleased to be able to tell the story. Well, you've done it brilliantly. So everyone needs to visit Battlefield, but they also need to buy your book first. What's it called? Tell everyone what it's called. Uh, now I never remember the title of the book. <laughs> Matt specifically told me I was to remember the, the evacuation of Gallipoli. Sorry, a momentary ahead. And it's uh, it's uh, you, if you buy it in advance, you get a two-hour podcast uh, on livinghistory.com, which Matt and I recorded, which has veterans. Uh, accounts, actual tape recordings embedded within it, which is great fun. Sorry to do this commercial bit, but you know why things have to be done. And I'm very proud of that uh, that two-hour podcast. Uh, we've only done a taster here. of There's so much excitement uh, in, in this story that you miss. And the future of Gallipoli studies is not in... Um, single volume histories it's in these uh, these smaller accounts of various things for instance where's the book on the french at gallipoli that's the next one someone should write someone who can speak french properly which sadly i can't right you're, you're, you're so right there's a lot of, there's a lot more material to come out we'll be talking about this for well, another hundred years i'm sure um thank you very much peter hart it's such an exciting project the website the podcast the book it's all very clever and joined up well done to you and matt mclaughlin and um thank you for coming on the podcast Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Dan. I think we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. 
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps and basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.